Hello, Jay. Hey, Tyler. So I have a question for you. I hope I have an answer. Uh, actually, two different questions. Here's the first question. What is the best trailer for a movie that you saw where the movie ended up not being that good? And what that means, so like what, what ad for a movie made the movie seem like it was going to be great, and then you saw it in the theater, and it was actually kind of a bummer. Oh, yeah. What is the best trailer that I ever saw? for a movie that ended up not being that good um i i I feel like a broken record but um i loved the trailers the uh hype everything that led up to batman versus superman and uh i remember uh, because that was in a season where i was wrapping up seminary after a 10-year run at seminary um and I am obviously a huge Superman fan. I am also a pretty big Batman fan. Uh, I think Superman's better for me, but I, I love Batman too. And to have those two on the same big screen at the same time was, I felt a really fitting celebration uh, to the end of my seminary career. And the trailers looked good, and it, it, I was hyped on it. And then I remember going to see it on opening night with a couple of friends and um i think we were about maybe uh you know 10 15 minutes into the movie and i went oh no <laughs> you know like this just isn't this isn't good uh it's a bad bad movie um particularly all the reasons that those two characters could have had to fight um that they just totally punted on and made up this ridiculous story. Um, it was the it was the beginning of the end of my of my uh, DC hopes oh, man. in the Marvel age. Um, yeah, it just didn't live up to the hype for me. Yeah. Um, I, I, I I've already talked about this at length, but the best trailer I think I've ever seen in the world was uh, the trailer for Episode One. The Phantom Menace, Star Wars Episode One, the the teaser trailer for it, and I highly recommend you go look it. I'll try to remember to put a link to it. It's so great. Um, it feels, uh, it's it just is so good, and it has every aspect of what is good about that movie is in the trailer. Uh, Jar Jar's there, but he doesn't really talk. I don't even think he, you can tell he's a little goofy. You see teases of Darth Maul. You hear the music. Um, it, it's just so good. It, and it, the digital um, worlds in that movie, which really make up 95% of the movie, are glimpsed very well in that. And so that, that trailer is, it uses things sparingly. It uses music well. You don't see a lot of the kind of uh, stiff acting and bad <laughs> plot pacing that the movie gives you. It's a really well done trailer. And, and then again, the movie was just like, oh, uh, but that trailer was great. And even now when I see it, I still think, man, that's the movie I want to see. I'll tell you what did live up to the hype, though. Uh, and I got to give credit to you and to uh, our, our webmaster, Rachel. Knives Out. Um, man, I, I watched that the other night with Sarah. And we, we started really late um, and, and had kind of you know told ourselves that we would watch half of it um, and then and then go to bed and then watch the next half the next night and that didn't pan out we we were hooked pretty well immediately um so we watched the whole thing uh in one shot up way too late um but it's such a good movie such a such a good movie
and a very good podcast. Uh, I, you might never know uh, that you guys weren't in the same room and that Rachel and I were never in that same conversation. Huh. Imagine that, a podcast where neither of us were actually talking to each other. How strange would that be? So the second question, what is the best sporting event outside of the Big Five? And the Big Five are, in this case, football, baseball, basketball, hockey, and soccer. So the the four or the five biggest uh, financial draws in America, and even kind of around the world, are are really those five. Um, So taking those out of the, and the fact that there's no sports at all right now, Kind of what's the most enjoyable sport to watch? What's the best sporting event to watch outside of the big uh, the big ones? Uh, man, it, it is weird in so many ways, but watching cycling is great. Um, I think because, I think a lot of people have a hard time getting into it because there are so many events going on at the same time. Um, so like in any Tour de France, um, there are 21, 22 stages in the Tour de France. So, um, people can win a single day of the race. You can win a stage. Um, but yet somebody will win overall and that person may or may not have ever won a stage. Um, usually they do, but it's possible to do it without, um, there's a green Jersey for the fastest sprinter, uh, for the person that can, um, go fast to some kind of a flat flat road um, between point A and point B and they have a whole bunch of those on the course and you get points for winning different sprints uh, there's a king of the mountains jersey where you know the fastest person to do any one particular climb again if you get uh, there's so many of those in a race you get points for every for every climb you win uh, so there's there's like four or five games going on in this one event admittedly lasts for a month um, but it's just so wild the strategy uh, that teams have to come up with right like if you if you have a guy that might win overall and you have a guy that might win the sprint you have to kind of figure out how you're going to divide up your team who's going to support who uh, who's going to make it to which um, which end point you know who's going to get the support the draft the you know the strategy is just fascinating uh, so it can it can seem really boring because like they, they each day they ride for three or four hours uh, i always say you know most tour de france days are like what the first half is like well not even half the first two-thirds is like watching golf uh and then the last minute and a half is like a good nascar race uh to the very end so i love cycling as particularly if you just want to break into cycling uh, obviously, you know, in the in the age of COVID, uh, everything's kind of shut down right now, and uh, nobody's doing any races. But next year, uh, hopefully, uh, there's a, an event in the spring called the Perry Roubaix, um, and it is so fascinating. It's a one day race. Uh, it's not like the Tour de France where there are stages. It's one day, um, and you ride from Roubaix to Paris, or maybe the other way around, Paris to Roubaix. I'm not sure. I should look that up. I'm not going to, but I should. But what makes this race in particularly really fascinating is a lot of it is on these ancient cobblestone roads. Um, and, and road bikes are usually, you know, built for, for very smooth pavement. And these guys um, ride over this incredibly soul-crushing, bouncing, jarring cobblestones. Um, and then it ends at a velodrome. 
which is an outdoor, in this case, cycling track. Uh, so it goes from these incredibly difficult cobblestones to it ends at the smoothest possible surface. Uh, it's a weird race, but it's one of my favorites. I try and set my alarm. It's, you know, I think it starts at like four or five in the morning. Um, I try and set my alarm every, every year to catch Perry Roubaix. So I miss it all. Uh, I wish that there was hockey. I very badly wish that there was hockey. Um, but I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll struggle through. Uh, my enjoyable sport that I love watching, and it only really comes around every four years, although it's going on all the time, is curling. I love curling it makes me i love the winter olympics just in general and olympics overall make me really excited i'm really kind of disappointed that the olympics are going to be canceled this year um i think they're just moving them back here anyway uh but curling is just so it's both really entertaining to watch because it looks so silly but it's also really entertaining to watch because it seems so doable and not doable in a it wouldn't be hard to do, but because uh, I think it'd be hard, but it's accessible. It's not like running uh, the 50 meter dash in a way that is um, on an Olympic pace or even a competitive pace. Like everybody can run, but that's not really fun uh, to a lot of people. Uh, and there's a strategy and stuff. And even like archery or like tobogganing, like all the, um, the, um, what is bobsled uh all of those things seem interesting but seem like you have to do a whole lot of training and a whole lot of difficult stuff to do it (coughs) the thing i love about curling is that it really looks like if we just had some ice and we had like six of us we could do this thing i don't i think that what they do is on a level that's really intense but it's like bowling like anybody can bowl but can you bowl 300 game no and watching someone do it is pretty neat um and just the concept of curling the fact that it's a really really old thing and comes from Scotland. Uh, it comes from just being on the ice and making a game out of the ice. But at the same time, um, is so foreign. Like it's not really, it's it's like bocce or horseshoes or something like that. And it just is neat. And then watching the brooms, the brooms is such a weird thing to it. So it's kind of funny to watch, but it's also like you, the first time I saw curling, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago, uh, it was funny to me because it, it, it's funny. These people, pushing being super serious about sweeping uh in front of these rocks and you're trying to figure out what's going on and then once you get the you watch for like five minutes and you kind of get what's going on and then it just becomes really compelling and it's a very watchable thing like you can see exactly where the strategies are um it's so simple yet complicated at the same time i think it's just a really fun thing so you can go on youtube right now and just look for like international curling competitions or something like that there's the u I think it's UCL, ICL, International Curling League, that that does regular, like you can see full on three hour matches um, for free on YouTube. And and it's international. So you see like the American team will be in there. Um, They're playing Japan and the Netherlands and Canada and uh, Germany and all the different, everybody you see in the Olympics is, they're doing it all the time. So you can go and see that. And I highly recommend during the, um, during the quarantine, to check out some curling and go online and find uh, some different sports that you don't usually watch. Um, another one that's really, uh, it's fun to watch in person is Ultimate Frisbee. I just love Ultimate Frisbee. Uh, watching clips of it is really fun. I've been, also been watching a lot of old clips of baseball uh, just because that's, I, I love baseball. 
and I started to watch the Michael Jordan documentary, The The Last Dance, which is on ESPN. I think it's free to everybody because we don't get ESPN and we still have it. So if you have the ESPN app, you can watch them all. There's going to be 10 episodes, I think, of it, and they've already released the first six. I just started it today, so I don't really have an opinion on it, other than I think that stuff is interesting. Um, I have been kind of easing the pain uh, by playing Xbox NHL 2013. I'm pleased to announce that the Pittsburgh Penguins just won the Stanley Cup uh, under my tutelage and coaching. <laughs> uh, and I, I really have in this pandemic. Uh, I noticed the other night I was sitting on the couch drinking um, Diet Coke and uh, eating Tostitos and playing Xbox. And I think I have just totally reverted to my college self. Um, I am just the way I was when I was at IUP a couple years ago. So, yeah, I hope I hope to take a shower sometime soon. That is my biggest my biggest goal. I think that's a good intro. So we'll see how this goes. Well, I'm Jay, and I'm Tyler, and this is Roughing, Roughing the, the Pastor. Pastor. This is in this weird situation that we are actually not even in the same room and not even recording at the same time. Uh, so we're going to try to fit this together in a way that sounds pretty interesting. But that's kind of the whole premise of this day's show. Um, we uh, we had a weird week and we weren't actually able to record uh, any shows. And um, we thought about recording stuff at the last minute and then we realized that even that was difficult. So it was easier for us to just record stuff separately. Um, but it also gave us an interesting um, idea for what this show could be. We a lot of times when you're having uh, when you're having conversations with people, obviously you are connected to what they're doing, you're connected to what they're saying, um, and you're responding to them. And so conversations are fantastic and essential. Um, but oftentimes we will we will talk differently when we're around other people. When we um, We'll respond to them. We may be more agreeable or disagreeable, depending on where they are. Uh, and so we thought this might be an interesting time to just have two different perspectives. Um, a lot of times uh, we, uh, Jay and I, are so um, simpatico on so many things that uh, when we have uh, different perspectives, they often kind of hedge into agreement, which is a good place to end up. Um, so this is not to counteract that, but this is kind of to ob- observe two different perspectives on something in a vacuum. Now, these two perspectives may end up being rather similar, and they probably won't be uh, gratingly different. Um, But it gives us the opportunity to kind of present two different perspectives on stuff. And what better way to talk about perspectives than perspectives on heaven and perspectives on hell? So today's show is The Theology of Heaven and Hell, Two Perspectives. And again, uh, these are perspectives that are completely pure because they are uh, unconnected un, uh, to one another in that uh, I did not hear Jay's before I shared my opinions and Jay did not hear mine. Uh, as two pastors, seminary trained theologians uh, who have um, had an education in this and have a vocational calling to uh, 
uh, ministry. Uh, a big part of what we do obviously deals with heaven and hell, with the concept of salvation and what that means. It doesn't mean we talk about heaven and hell all the time, but it does mean that it is a concept um, that we have to be thinking about. And so um, uh, we thought it would be interesting to have each of us give uh, our own perspective on heaven and our own perspective on hell and kind of what that means and what it shapes out. Uh, both, uh, uh, at least in my perspective, and I'm sure Jay's doing the same, um, looking at scripture, seeing what scripture has to say about it, uh, trying to, and, and particularly my my approach is, is trying to separate the cultural understanding of heaven and hell from a scriptural understanding, because while the two often link up, they're not the same. And our cultural understanding, both just kind of in general Western um, Western culture, but also Western religious culture, uh, Western Christianity, have very specific ideas of what heaven and hell is, and, and think that they're a lot more universal than they really are. So here's Jay's perspective. Okay, so hell gets all the the controversy and the play in these conversations, uh, mostly because of everybody's favorite heretic, Rob Bell. Uh, And I'll talk about that in in the next segment. But I think heaven is not without some controversy, too. Um, That it is one of the least um, understood Christian concepts uh, that we have. It's just people, uh, there are so many wide varieties of of um, opinion and thought when it comes to heaven and um just frankly a lot of them are wrong <laughs> uh, i you know we are never uh, anywhere in scripture told that we will get wings and harps and halos uh angels and humans are two distinct beings we don't all of a sudden turn into angels when we get to heaven um you know, we have these images of a paradise, and I, I, I get that. There's the one time Jesus says to uh, the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, and that's cool. Um, but everybody kind of formulates their own view of what paradise might be, and none of it is biblical. Uh, none of it is pointed out in Scripture. Um, the one thing, there, there are two really big things I want to say about heaven. Um and the first is this, we get in the Lord's Prayer um, this this statement from Jesus that we are to pray uh, that God's kingdom would come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, and so the first thing I notice about heaven is that it is entirely possible to experience it and to coax it into our present reality here on earth. Um, that the kingdom of heaven could exist on earth um, seems to be something that Jesus is pretty well convinced of. And and truth be told, you know, if you take even just a couple of minutes and think about your relationship to the world, have there not been times uh, that you were in a particularly good spot and the thought crosses your mind, oh my gosh, this place is heaven. Uh, I remember um, my grandparents took us on a cruise a bunch of years ago uh, for their 60th wedding anniversary. Actually, wow, this is a long bunch of years ago. This was before Sarah and I were even married. Um, and and we, we departed from Miami, which is kind of, you know, I think the dollar store bin of beaches. Um, 
you know, so we, we get on the boat, you know, kind of in the afternoon and at night in Miami and then we take off and, and have dinner and everything. And we, we go to sleep and you wake up in, um, wherever we were, Aruba or something like that. And, um, it's just pristine. The water's clear and clean and gorgeous. And, you know, you wake up and they, they serve you Mickey mouse shaped pancakes and, you know, Oh boy, this is heaven. Um, heaven can come to earth. That's the cliche answer. I think heaven comes to earth a lot of times in the way we treat each other. Um, there have been moments in my life where, um, I'll give you an example. The the other day, I think I mentioned this on the podcast, um, that all the days are blending together in quarantine. Um, but I ordered something um, pretty big through Amazon, like big as in it was like 75 pounds. Uh, and the UPS guy came, and I knew he was coming because of the tracking. Um, so I met him out in the driveway and, and kind of took it from him. And um, I gave him a tip, and I, I, I said thank you. And there was this moment where... Uh, this guy was just so appreciative to be thanked. Uh, and he, he told us about, you know, my wife was standing there too. He told us about the lady who was really ticked off at him, uh, that her wine of the month club was two days late uh, and kind of berated this guy in the middle of a global pandemic when he's out risking his life, um, <laughs> quite literally, uh, to bring us our wine of the month club, or in my case, an indoor bike, um, and just the look on his face when somebody finally said thank you, uh, when someone finally recognized what it was costing this guy to do his job um, and took a moment to say thanks, um, that felt heavenly to me. Uh, it felt like justice in the face of a whole lot of injustice. Uh, it felt like a whole lot of wrongs being righted. It felt like, um, yeah, it just, and it wasn't big. Right. It was it was a you know, a quick tip and and a, and a thank you and it, it cost me almost nothing, but it felt heavenly. And I think, you know, that's why Jesus, if you look at Matthew twenty five, the things Jesus invites us to participate in aren't that big, right? I was I was in prison, you visited me. What's that cost you? A couple hours? Uh, you know, I was sick and you took care of me. What's that cost you? A little bit of compassion? Um, you know, it doesn't, it, I was hungry and you fed me. What's that cost you? A couple bucks? You know, a trip to the canned goods aisle <laughs> at Aldi? It, 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 it doesn't cost much to bring about heaven. Um, heaven can come pretty well on the cheap. We just have to invest in it. Uh, we just have to be willing to put someone else ahead of our own needs to put right justice ahead of um, ahead of selfish want. Uh, and in that way, we can bring about heaven on earth uh, the way Jesus invited us to pray, which incidentally, Jesus just doesn't have us pray for that and then hope it shows up. Uh, we talked before in the prayer episode that I think the best prayers are the ones that change us, that reorient our hearts um, towards the kingdom of God in this world. And so... Um, I think Jesus invites us to pray that prayer every day because he knows we need to have our hearts reoriented towards this kingdom of God breaking forth on earth as it is in heaven, uh, and that we have a role to play in making that happen. So we keep working at that. Um, the other thing I want to say about heaven, just real quick, is that um, my sort of controversial statement 
about heaven is that I don't think heaven is the ultimate reward for Christian faith. Um, there is a version of Christianity out there that says uh, we're all sinners, we're all terrible people, uh, Jesus died to save us from our sins, so far I'm good, um, and that if we believe in Jesus, we will get to go to heaven when we die. Um, and that is all, you know, kind of technically true. Um, that's the mechanics of it. But it, it, setting it up in that formula kind of makes it sound like the only thing that we're supposed to do is get to the next level um, and, and that we'll get to heaven and everything will be cool. Um, I don't think heaven itself is the reward for good Christian faith. Instead, the way I say it is I think that heaven is the place that that reward would take place. Um, I think that heaven is the pl- the, the ultimate reward for Christian faith is relationship with the God who created us. Uh, the triune God, all three persons of the Trinity, uh, live together in this endless relationship with one another, constantly in communion with each other. Um, and and we are constantly being invited into that now. Um, and, and, and yes, when we die, there is resurrection from the dead and there is afterlife and there is a place called heaven where that relationship takes place. Uh, where we will get to enter into the eternal relationship with the triune God uh, that is the result of our um, the result of our believing in Christ. So is heaven the reward for Christian faith? No, I don't I don't think so. I think that's too small a reward. I think heaven is the place that the reward takes place. Uh, I think heaven is the venue um, for that relationship with God uh, that will be our ultimate reward and that now you can start, turning into a dog that chases its tail. Um, that is uh, the the other part of why you can experience heaven on earth now instead of waiting for the afterlife is because that relationship, that communion with the triune God is available to each and every one of us on the daily. Um, we have a Holy Spirit that lives in us and, and navigates through us and communicates with us um, the thoughts and desires of our Father. And, 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 and we can... We can live into that uh, in the here and now. And um, so, yeah, I think that relationship piece is super big. Um, that's that's the ultimate end game is not necessarily the streets of gold and the harps and the wings and stuff like that. It is the relationship that we can experience with God and with each other um, as humanity. And those are my thoughts on heaven. Um, we have this idealized version of heaven. Um, it's something that even in non-Christian uh, things, in non-religious things, it's it's a motif that we see in culture all the time. But all of those present a heaven that's based on pleasing us, that's based on um, kind of this libertine idea of pleasure being at the heart of heaven, or uh, in the sense of the angels on clouds, just this peacefulness being at the heart of heaven. Uh, I've, I've mentioned it before. One of the most influential books that I've read in the last 20 years has been, is a book that's, it's probably what, 60 years old at this point, but it's called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. It's not about divorce. It's a weird title for this. It's all about heaven and hell. And um, 
Lewis's concept of heaven and hell, I think, are really good. I'll talk about the hell one when we talk about hell, but his concept of heaven is basically this place where it's earth, but everything is so real that it hurts. And so the people who aren't yet in heaven who are, they basically take a bus up to heaven to see heaven and, and they, um, they experience the grass. The grass is so real that it hurts. Like they can't uh, interact with it because they are not fully real yet. It's, it's really kind of this existential concept of heaven, but very unlike most concepts of heaven. And it's very much earth. Like it's very much a real physical place. It's so real that it's almost overwhelming. And, and the people who come to visit it who are being invited into it are almost like ghosts and they have to be there long enough to kind of become real in that place. Um, but it's not about pleasure or um, kind of peaceful bliss in an um, angel-like way, but it's about reality. It's about life. And at the center, uh, and they're going into the city and at the center of the city is God. Uh, but they're, they're moving closer to God the longer they're in heaven. Uh, it's just really, again, read the book. It's really good. Uh, it's a really brief book. It's less than 200 pages, but it's dense in terms of theology at times, but it's also accessible. It's kind of like a mix between, he writes a lot of theological books like Mere Christianity and stuff like that. And then he's got the Narnia books, which are also theological, but very much like fantasy books. This is kind of halfway in between both of those. Uh, so it's pretty accessible, but it's, it's, it's a good read and it's not incredibly long, but it will make you think about a lot of things. So that concept of heaven, um, is actually closer to the heaven that's presented in the Bible. Uh, there's not really a whole lot of talk about heaven in the Bible, um, especially in the Old Testament. One of the things that we, I grew up assuming, um, because you kind of just think, as growing up a white man in, uh, in America, I just thought that my, the culture I was given and the exposure that I had was the, the monoculture, was the, not only the dominant culture, but the, the singular culture that everyone else would have that same perspective and there may be different like vernaculars on it like v different variances regionally but ultimately that was the the heart of it um that's not true <laughs> at all but um it's still it, it got at the sense of um again when we kind of couple judeo-christian as one word that we we as christians act like the jewish faith is just basically the first 60 percent of our faith and it flows quite nicely into um, Christianity. And, and I'm not not saying that, but I, it doesn't flow as easily as, as you think. And a big part of that is that um, largely, uh, this is a generalization, but in, in, in large part, uh, the Jewish faith does not really have a concept of heaven or hell. Uh, and now you may be saying, but what about the Old Testament? Uh, heaven's definitely not talked about in the Old Testament. Uh, the promised land is talked about in the whole Old Testament, and that is largely... That has been understood to mean uh, modern day, the modern day nation state of Israel, like that that location, Israel Palestine, kind of the uh, Judean Peninsula area of the world. Um, that was the biblical promised land that was given to Abraham, uh, the land of Canaan, uh, and it was then the place where uh, Moses led the people out of Egypt into the promised land, back to that that region of the world, uh, Israel-Palestine. And, um, and so in a, in a large way, and that's why that part of the world is so sought after, because that is heaven. That is, for many, many um, people in the Jewish faith, like the, a physical space on earth is heaven, and that, and that God will 
bless and reside and bless the world through that place and that there will be a sense when there is peace forever uh, for the people of God in this place and and through the whole world from that place but that God's chosen people are given this space and and need to um, take that space as a as a means of blessing the rest of the world um, so the concept of a heaven as another place as somewhere other than this world is just completely foreign and uh, just not part of the Old Testament story in a, in a very real sense now uh, when we parse that away from the New Testament, that can be get really confusing. So uh, I'll get to, as I said, uh, the two are very consistent and the two are very much part of the same story. But um, the full understanding of what heaven is and what salvation is really comes through Christ. And uh, so much of what heaven is, is a physical space and connected to a place here on earth. But through the New Testament, through Christ, you start to realize that it is a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. And it's not that this specific spot on the planet is more sacred than any other space, but that God is going to redeem all things and not through a chosen people, but through a chosen person, which is Christ, which is the son of God. And so that then those chosen people then become the people who um, are people of Christ, which are really all people in that sense. Like anyone who chooses to believe in Christ and, and accept that God loves them and believe that that Jesus died for us. Um, it's not a say this prayer and you're okay. It's live your life in a way that that trusts that God is telling the truth when God tells us that we're going to be okay, that uh, the salvation of the cross is enough for us and we can't earn it and that's okay. And so we should respond differently to the planet and to, the, to each other. And so heaven, um, whenever Jesus, from a New Testament standpoint, whenever people talk to Jesus about heaven, he never says, well, it's someplace up there. Uh, it's this other world where we live on another planet and he doesn't ever say pearly gates or anything like that pearly gates actually comes from revelation uh, Jesus instead his concept of heaven is always here so so many of his parables are start off with people saying what's what's heaven going to be like what's the kingdom of heaven and he'll always say like oh it's like a like a shepherd that lost his sheep or it's like a, a, a man who had two sons and one of them ran away and then came back and then the other one was mad about it and uh, the the father still loved them both and like he all almost all his parables are in response to the question what is heaven like and his responses are always earthly it's always real world experiences of what people are doing now and on earth and so from that standpoint while while jesus never says specifically it's this it's this but he does say it's it's like what you know it's, it's this reality that you've already experienced, but it's that sense of renewed relationship of celebrating that which was lost and now has been reconciled. And so to Jesus, the concept of heaven is a concept of reconciliation, not only between us and each other, uh, but between us and God and between us and creation and the world, that it's a reconciled world. It's not uh, even... Uh, what we get in Revelation, which is its own thing altogether. At some point, we'll have a full-on conversation about Revelation. But Revelation, um, at the heart of Revelation, it's this really weird, confusing, kind of scary book uh, if we just take it blindly. It's a very specific type of uh, um, literature. It's apocalyptic literature, which is different than 
normal literature. So it's not meant to be taken seriously or literally. It's meant to be taken seriously, but not literally. No one at the time thought that you would read it literally. It's like a Picasso painting. A Picasso painting has genuine truth and beauty and honesty in it, but no one thinks that Picasso actually saw people who had eyes on the same side of their face and who had blockheads and weird misshapen bodies. Like that, um, it's an abstract way of writing and presenting stuff. It's very much like Diego Rivera, I always think of, who is an artist who did these murals that were just big and, and bold and, and kind of had all these mystical elements combined with like very realistic elements. Revelation is very much like that. But even in Revelation, the concept of heaven is this concept of the new heaven and the new earth, meaning that heaven and earth collide and God is no longer, God no longer resides anywhere other than here. I mean, God is still everywhere, but the separation between God and us is completely gone. And there is no more later. There is only now. And that there is a city, again, in this concept of, of symbolism, there is a city and it's a perfect city, but it, and it has a gate that is always open, that will never close. So there is protection within the city that is kind of represented by the gate, but there's openness in the city, that there will never be a need to close the gate and that no one will be closed out in that sense. So heaven from a New Testament standpoint is very much about uh, the whole earth being restored, the whole of creation, a whole of universe being restored, all the pain and suffering being gone and a perpetual existence with God. So it's not just this place where there's uh, pleasure and Christmas in heaven. It's not just a place where there is peaceful playing harps on clouds it is a place that looks like the best of what we have now so the best parts of life are there the best parts of what we experience now is reflected in heaven and all the all the worst parts are not there uh, so what does that look like i don't really know but that's the promise and the, but so what i do know from a scriptural standpoint is that it's a real place it's really here it's not some other planet. It's not often some ethereal plane that we just are become one with the universe and are, live in this nebulous cloud and become part of this hive mind. That there are still people and that the people are, that God made this world to be like it is. Uh, that Eden was this world perfect and it got screwed up. And the whole of the story of creation is getting back to that perfect place where there's no more separation between God and us and no more separation between us and us and that uh, there would be no need for anger and fighting and jealousy and things like that so that's a, i mean it's a pretty general concept but and it's nuanced and kind of um it's kind of a non-answer but that's also kind of what jesus does all right so let's talk about hell um uh, so a while back, uh, everybody's favorite heretic, Rob Bell, uh, got into a whole bunch of trouble when he released a book called Love Wins. And the basic premise of Love Wins was um, sort of in Rob Bell's typical fashion of uh, there are very, very few times that Rob Bell will come out and say, this is the truth of the matter or this is what I believe. Uh, instead, he just kind of asks these leading questions. Uh, what if it was like this? And what if it was like that? Uh, and so the, the kind of, I'm, I'm going to do very poor justice to this book uh, in, in two minutes or so. Um, but one of the first driving forces of the question, one, or one of the first driving questions of the book is, um, 
what why would God um, create people that were destined for hell? Um, why would a loving God send people to hell? Uh, what's up with that? And how can we reconcile these ideas of God is love with a God that sends people to hell? Uh, and then the book kind of turns to asking the question, what if there is no hell? Uh, or at least what if there is no hell the way that we picture it um, of a place of conscious eternal torment? Um, and, and that's really where he, that's really where Rob Bell got the heretic title. Um, you know, the evangelical church really uh, lost it on him because there there is a segment of Christianity that needs hell so that heaven has some value. Um, and um, I, I, I don't know how else to explain that, that like there's a group of people for whom the punishment needs to be escaped, not the reward needs to be run towards. Um, so if, if there were no hell, the argument goes, would you uh, love God as much? Uh, would heaven be as sweet if you didn't know what you'd been saved from or something like that? <laughs> that's my dog barking uh, very loudly upstairs. Um, and so this is where, you know, again, I don't know if Rob Bell ever, I don't think, it's been a while since I've read that book, I don't think Rob Bell ever explicitly comes out and says there is no hell. Um, he asks the question a lot, which is his way of doing it. Um, th- and so let's assume for a minute that's what he's trying to drive at. This is one place that Rob Bell and I disagree. Uh, I, I do believe in hell. Um, I, again, kind of like heaven, don't think that the modern um, imagination of the church matches up with what hell actually is. Uh, I don't know that it's a fiery place with a dude with horns and a pitchfork uh, tortures you forever consciously. Um, I think that... Um, you know, if the reward for a good Christian faith is that relationship with God, then the um, the possibility exists that you could live without that relationship, um, that you could live outside that relationship, n- disconnected from the source of life that is God. Um, and, and the Bible is pretty clear that that lack of relationship is hell, um, that, that, that an eternity without the loving embrace of God, that is the definition of hell. Incidentally, same way that there can be heaven on earth, there sure can be hell on earth, uh, right? If you travel to one of the hardest hit neighborhoods in New York City right now where COVID is running rampant and unemployment is through the roof, and oh, by the way, the effects of COVID um, disproportionately affect people of color uh, over uh, richer white people uh, for reasons we can't possibly comprehend and inequalities in the you know, healthcare system. And I, I, you could spend hours talking about it. But to someone who the system has left behind, uh, to someone who the system has failed, who's facing this virus without the possibility of work or the health insurance that comes with work, I can imagine that person waking up today and saying, this is hell on earth. It doesn't feel like God is involved in this. Um, And that leads me to my other uh, thought on hell. And and part of where I do agree with Rob Bell, um, where he's constantly asking the question, you know, what kind of loving God would send people to hell? Uh, What kind of loving God... um, 
would would put people in that kind of torment and um for me god doesn't send people to hell um i think if god got his way god would allow us all to have that relationship um but i also know there are people in this world who would rather choose their own way um than choose to live in god's rule um that we as people actually send ourselves to hell. Uh, God doesn't send anybody there um, through the choices that we make and um, through the ways that we live our lives. So like, you know, the the person that is suffering more disproportionately right now, a person of color who is uh, adversely affected by COVID in ways that, you know, white folk aren't, that's the result of choices that have been made generation after generation after generation where we chose to not uphold justice, um, but instead uphold selfish gain. And, and that's led to the situation where there's hell on earth. Uh, we, we chose selfishness over justice. Um, and now we're bearing the fruits of that. My kids are awake, which is awesome. I got to go upstairs and be a dad in a second. Um, (laughs) And, and I think God is, you know, God is not so benevolent to force us to love him. Um, God does not, you know, God, could God let everybody go to heaven? Yeah, sure. But to do that, you have to fall in love with God and, um, you can't force somebody to love you. Um, you can't force somebody into relationship with you. And so, um, C.S. Lewis, I think said it was either C.S. Lewis or my boss. My boss, uh, quoted, quoted C.S. Lewis so much that it might be might just be him and I'm confusing the two uh, but that that the gates of hell are locked from the inside um, that that anybody that finds themselves in hell whether um, in the little pockets of hell we experience on the day to day or uh, in the big version of hell in eternity from just not wanting relationship with God they put themselves there um, they put themselves in that situation by not wanting to respond to love uh, and that's Incidentally, quite a bit different from, uh, you know, somebody, you know, again, there's some tired cliches that go with this, right? The, the, what about the person in Africa that never hears about Jesus and doesn't know who to call? I have a funny feeling that Jesus reveals himself to us uh, <laughs> in lots of ways, both in the present life and in the afterlife. Uh, and so I'm not entirely convinced that somebody that never hears of Jesus would not have opportunity to enter into relationship with Jesus in this life or the next. Uh, so I'm not saying that like people in Africa didn't choose to fall in love with Jesus. So they go to hell. No, um, I believe firmly that there are people arrogant enough in this world, uh, that when presented the opportunity to fall in love with Jesus, if only they set aside their own selfish desires and their need for uh, more and their, uh, desire to be in charge or to be rulers of their own kingdom. I believe there are people that exist that don't want to fall in love with Jesus uh, because it would cost too much. Uh, and so for them, hell might be the most compassionate thing God could do uh, to let them live in their own choice, uh, to let them make that choice and stay with it. Um, that's where it is. But I don't I don't at all buy this idea of a God who punishes people for choosing not to love him. Um, I think... I, I think God is is way more loving than that. Um, so, those are my thoughts, quick off the cuff about hell. 
All right, hell. So hell is equally a weird concept. Um, so much of what we have, and, and we've said this a lot before, but this is important to kind of get out. So much of what we think we know about heaven and hell comes from uh, popular culture. And by popular culture, of course I mean the writers of the, uh, the, the early Renaissance and before. And uh, so largely I'm talking about Dante, um, who wrote the Divine Comedy in 1320 is when it was finished. Um, and then he died the year after that. And uh, then and in the Divine Comedy, he's got it's, there's three parts, Inferno, Purgatory, and Paradise. And Dante's Inferno is all about hell. Uh, Dante's uh, Par- or Purgatorio is all about purgatory. And um, Dante's uh, Paradise is all about heaven. And he... Uh, gives us this really detailed account of what it is, but this is all kind of not made up, but this is all his his guess at what heaven is like. He is he was a very spiritual person. He was he was very religious. He was trying he he loved God and was trying to understand God better and trying to help us understand God. And so it creates this kind of not a fantasy, but this elaborate uh, vision of what hell and heaven could be like, which were not meant to be taken literally. And they have been taken literally, and they've become so literal that they become a part of the zeitgeist to the point that most of us think this is a biblical understanding of it. The idea of even a devil having pointy horns and like a bifurcated tail and being red, there's nothing in Scripture that anywhere describes Satan or devils or demonic things in any way like that. Those are very Middle Ages uh, images. Uh, I don't even know. I can't remember if if, uh, Dante even describes anything in hell like that. Uh, For Dante, there's a section of hell that's actually very, very cold. Um, There's gates of hell, I think seven gates of hell, seven or nine, different levels of hell, and they're for different types of suffering. Um, So what does the Bible say about hell? Uh, The Judeo-Christian stuff, again, we just assume that Jews, Jewish people also believe in heaven and hell in a similar way. They just believe in like a Jewish version of heaven and hell. And not really. That, again, kind of my understanding of, of most Jewish beliefs now is that there's not really a heaven and there's not really a hell. Uh, in, the bio, in the Old Testament, there are times that you see hell written out in English translations, but it's Sheol. And Sheol is a very different thing from the understanding of hell that the Christian church has. Sheol is this sense of darkness where the spirits go. It's, it's not unlike uh, purgatory. Uh, it's also Hades is, is, the, is the concept of it. Jesus actually says Hades. So there are a lot of translations will anytime Sheol or Hades or Gehenna appear, it will just translate that straight to hell. So it makes it feel like there's a lot more consistency throughout the whole of Scripture about what hell is than there really is. Sheol is just this... It's a, it's a place of the dead. It's a land of the dead. But it's not this place of suffering per se. Um, it's, it's just a place that you're this. Again, it's a little bit more like purgatory because I think you can get out of it. It's just different. Uh, and Gehenna, uh, which Jesus says sometimes in Gehenna is also in the Talmud. Gehenna is a place right outside of Jerusalem, which is basically where there, were, uh, there, was, there had been sacrifices there. Um, during the early parts, uh, during the kingdom of Judah, during the, the time of the Old Testament, 
um, when there were different pagan gods and stuff. And so they, when they talk about how Gehenna is this terrible place because they talk about how there were these sacrifices, human sacrifices, to these false gods. And that is a, a kind of the suffering that happens at Gehenna is terrible. And the weeping and gnashing of teeth that happened in Gehenna refers to this suffering that is there. And the gnashing of teeth refers to kind of these wild dogs because there's also, it's a, it's a dump. It's where it's outside of the city where they take all their stuff and there's these constant fires going where they are, uh, they're, they're burning their garbage. And so it becomes this analogy for this terrible place to be, uh, this, this place that you don't want to go. So from a, a biblical standpoint, both in the Old Testament and in the New that Jesus is referring to, when you talk about Gehenna, they use it as a symbolism to say, you know how terrible Gehenna is? That's, that's what this suffering is like. And so the, it, it becomes an interesting thing, look, trying to find a scriptural understanding of hell. No one even asks him what hell's like. Uh, they ask him what heaven's like all the time, but no one asks him what hell's like because that's not on their mind. And the concept of hell that we have in, in a modern day sense, again, isn't formulated or, or realized by anyone at Jesus' time. They're not worried about it. They're worried about uh, being right with God. They're not worried about being thrown into a lake of fire or uh, getting poked by pitchforks or being walking on hot coals or, or something like that. Again, all of these things come from this, um, from the, the Middle Age Renaissance writers that are writing religious stuff to try to help us understand it, but trying to put a story around this. And we have held on to those images because it's clean. I mean, it's, it's binary and it's convenient. That if heaven is a place of constant pleasure, then hell must be a place of constant suffering. And the scripture doesn't really get at that. There are some indications of this place where you will, like the suffering will always be there, but it doesn't say that you will suffer in a physical sense. It's basically kind of alluding to this constant level of separation from God. And being separated from God is the worst suffering that you can have. And again, C.S. Lewis creates this idea. The hell that C.S. Lewis has is more like purgatory in the sense that it doesn't seem to be a closed system. It doesn't seem like that there's a point at which hell is eternal, apart from the idea that people choose to be in hell. Uh, hell, as described by C.S. Lewis in, in The Great Divorce, is really just kind of this dingy mill town where it's always kind of rainy and overcast and glum. And uh, it's just, I think of this like British mill town um, where it's just depressing all the time. And people are there, uh, but they just think it's regular. And it feels like the world and it feels like regular life, but they all hate each other. And they're all complaining all the time and they can just build their own houses. And people, it said the town keeps getting bigger because people keep getting annoyed with everybody and moving further away. And if they just think of a house, it just kind of gets constructed and then the houses get bigger and bigger and further and further away. And the people who've been there the longest are kind of the furthest from the center of town because they keep trying to get away from people. But there's no suffering. There's no demons there. There's no devil there. There's no anything that is putting on this suffering. All of the suffering is self-imposed. All of the suffering is not someone who is conscious of their suffering. They are just so annoyed with everybody else and so certain that they are right, that they're holding on to their ability to be right and their ability to not have to be in community with other people, that they are, that's what keeps them away from everybody. So uh, it becomes, again, kind of the simple and complex idea all at the same time. And the, and the sense that hell is something that we choose is really interesting. And if we look at what Jesus is saying, if we don't choose heaven, 
if we have if we choose to believe in God, but we don't choose our salvation, we don't we are not the ones who accomplish our own salvation. Then at the same time, we're not the ones who uh, who can condemn ourselves eternally to hell, in the sense that we all deserve it. None of us deserve to get into heaven, but if we've all been given this free gift of salvation, then everyone in hell is capable uh, or is open to being able to accept this gift of salvation. And Lewis interprets that to say, well, then therefore the people that are in hell are the people who reject that gift and refuse to accept that it's real. And so they then, the only thing that's keeping them in hell is their own stubbornness, their own pride, their own desire to be right. Or in many cases, they may believe in God, but they don't believe in a God that can save everybody. And they believe that their good deeds should make them better than other people or that their suffering is too big to be wiped away or their uh, sin is too big to be forgiven. Whatever it is that keeps them away from God is what keeps them in hell. From a scriptural standpoint, that is pretty in line. I mean, the people that are holding on to their light, that when Jesus says whoever wants to, to gain their life must lose it and whoever tries to hold on to their life is going to lose it. Uh, um, that if you are trying to say that what you have done entitles you to a certain judgment, whether that is good or bad, uh, you're going to lose. Like th That's just not how it works. And so the way in which you gain life is by giving up this notion that you are the one who has determined whether or not you are fit for heaven or hell, because we're all fit for hell. And so Jesus's offer of salvation only comes when we accept the fact that we don't deserve it. And if we can't accept that, then we can't accept the gift of salvation. Uh, not that God doesn't want to give it to us, but we just can't. It's not about saying like, well, I guess I'll take it, but really I do deserve this. Um, and the story of the prodigal son really highlights that, where you get the one son who doesn't deserve it and gets the party. And the other son who comes in and says, I do deserve it and doesn't want to go into the party because he thinks, well, I deserve it and this guy doesn't. And so why are you giving it to him? Because he's a lousy son. I'm a great son who did everything. Both of, he feels entitled to it. So he is not, accepting the gift as it is anyway. So one is it doesn't deserve the gift because he's done everything wrong. The other one thinks he deserves the gift, which makes it not a gift. It makes it then payment. And that becomes the hard thing. One of the things that has really struck me in the last uh, several weeks, actually, um, that I really like about the Bible is that there's so much about the Bible that doesn't isn't really interested in explaining things to you. Um, and it's not because it doesn't know but it's, it's trying to help you know that that's not the point. And I think the Bible is so light on the concept of heaven and the concept of hell because that's not the point. And we become obsessed with heaven and hell, and so you start chasing heaven rather than desiring relationship with God. And that's a different thing because heaven is about us being safe, and relationship with God is about us being with God. And not just with God later, but being in relationship with God now. And being in relationship with God now then allows us to care about the people on earth now. Whereas if we're obsessed with heaven, we don't care about the people on earth outside of what they can do to get us into heaven. There's this, it's just a theological concept that basically once everyone on earth has had the chance to hear about God, then Jesus will come back. And so for many people, whether they admit it or not, evangelism is less about caring for other people's souls and more about just making sure that everyone has been given the pitch 
about whether or not they're going to accept Christ. And once every single human on the earth has accepted that, has been given the opportunity to choose, has heard the sales pitch, then Jesus is going to come back. And so there's a lot of mission that's, that's actually, whether it's conscious or not, I think it's conscious to a degree, is really promulgated not on helping people, but on helping themselves on I'm going to go out and make sure everybody hears this so that Jesus will come back and I will be okay. And yes, I want them to be okay too, but once they've heard it, it's not really my problem. I'm just the messenger. I can't get them to do it. And that's that leads to a very different church, a very different spirituality that is about seeing people as a to-do list. We need to go and, and talk to all the people in Russia and all the people in Africa and all the people in uh, Asia and all the people in Europe and even the people in Oceania. And then if there's anybody in Antarctica, we gotta hit them, we gotta make sure everybody, it's like doing a census, that once everybody's gonna be covered, then just be like, okay, finally, now I'm coming back. There's so many things wrong with that, both in terms of Jesus just waiting for us to do a task before something happens, and also that we can force God's hand, and that God, that's not relationship. A census taker does not have a relationship with you. A census taker just counts you as a number. And if the church is just counting people's numbers, that's a problem. So when these mission organizations are just saying, these many lives were saved in this one night. No. One, all those people were saved on a cross 2,000 years ago. And all those people were actually saved before the world began when God set this thing into place. People recognizing that reality does not equal salvation. And we cannot take credit for it. And when, So whether or not we're celebrating the good that did happen in an event like that, when churches and Christians tout like so many people were saved at this event, one, no, they weren't. And two, that's missing the point. You're turning all of these people into numbers that can be checked off and that our obligation as the church is just to have that one event where people pray a prayer and accept Jesus into their heart and then we're good and we can just move on because then it's not our problem. Then we got to move on to the other unsaved people. And that is not relationship, and that's not what we're called to do. So that concept of heaven and hell that is about staying out of hell and getting into heaven leads us to this really crappy form of of faith and really self-centered and selfish and kind of gross form of faith that views people as objects uh, that are just either in the way or beneficial to us getting into heaven or staying out of hell. And it also becomes this easily moral binary that allows us to judge people that, oh, well, there's the wheat and the chaff and there's the goat and the sheep and I'm a sheep and you're a goat. And so there we go. And I don't need to talk to you because you're, there's the reprobate and the chosen uh, to use all the different languages that we have. Uh, And the larger story of scripture is basically the wheat and the chaff is the best example because wheat and chaff are not two different things. Wheat is what you get. The chaff is what's left over. So you, you cut down the wheat and then you shake out the actual wheat. So you cut down the stalk of wheat and then you shake it out with a threshing fork, with a, 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 a pitchfork, basically. You just scoop it up, shake it, and all of, the, all of the seeds, all the wheat, all the stuff that you can then grind into flour falls down. And the chaff is just what's left over. It's like if you are um, shucking corn, like when you peel off the corn stalks, the, the corn husk, you don't eat that, but you need it in order for the corn to grow. So in and of itself, it's not evil. It's not bad. It's just not necessary. And so the wheat, separating the wheat from the chaff is not separating the good from the bad. It's separating the things that give life to the things that are no longer necessary. And God is taking away the parts of us, just like the stock of wheat. It's not like this whole stock of wheat is bad. We're not separating good fruit from bad. We're separating 
the things that are no longer necessary from the things that will give light and become something new. That's what God is doing. Uh, all of these references are less about picking out good from evil and more about God helping to separate the things in ourselves that God is doing the separation, not of individual people, but within each of us, that we each have wheat and chaff. We each have good and evil within us. And God is going to take what is good and let us let go of what is evil. And that gets thrown into the fire, not because it's going to burn in hell, but because that's what you do with chaff. You burn it. It's not some, it's not meant to be some sign of suffering. It's just a saying you don't, we're going to get rid of this. It's like saying we just throw it out. Scripture ultimately is not giving us tons of time on heaven and hell because that's not that important. And I don't mean to diminish that, but I, I mean, again, if we are, if our faith is based on getting into heaven and staying out of hell, then it can lead us to be really crappy people, Real, like people who don't care about other people who are just obsessed with ourselves. And that's the last thing that God wants us to do. And so God, Jesus barely talks about heaven and hell because that's not the point. And so there's so much stuff in scripture that we become obsessed with trying to parse out the details. And it's not like those conversations are bad. I mean, we just talked for over an hour about this between the two of us. Um, and I think it's a good conversation to have. And obviously we could talk about it more and more. But if this becomes the centerpiece of your faith, that's a problem. And so these things that are worth talking about intellectually, worth talking about kind of figuring out what it means for us and how we respond to different theological quandaries are not to be the centerpiece of how we live our life. Heaven and hell really shouldn't matter to you because we are all promised heaven. And we're not promised heaven in this otherworldly sense. We're promised a heaven on earth. And what does that look like? I don't know. And that's okay. Because all that we know is what it looks like is something we can't quite imagine, but it does look like something that you've seen before. But the details are not important. What's important is it's where you want to be. And that you all are given a free pass to it, that everyone is welcome to it if you just believe that this is that God really loves you. And live in a way that proves that by caring about other people rather than you care about yourself first by treating the world as though it doesn't belong to you, but that it belongs to God and that God gave it to all of us so that we treat the world in a way that cares for everybody, not just the people on our street or the people in our house or the people in our country or our side of the world, that we do things with our resources that help everyone and not just certain people. So that's how, from my perspective. So uh, this concept of doing um, two different podcast, two different perspectives, I think was fun. I think we'll do it again at some point. It's not my favorite way to do a podcast because I really like talking to Jay. And even though we've been separated, this is still super weird. And it'll be a weird one to cut together. Uh, so uh, I'm glad that uh, Jay had this idea. Uh, I'm glad that it necessitated us doing it. So uh, let us know what you think about this. Um, and again, we, we'll definitely do more like this. But how often you want us to do it? What are some other topics that you may want to hear about in this fashion? Because um, I think it's pretty cool. Uh, this had been a very different conversation had we been talking directly to each other. And I kind of want to hear that conversation because I'd rather hear how my thoughts fold in with Jay's and the ways they don't. Because I think that's important. That neither one of us are the the expert on heaven and hell. And there are probably a lot of ways we lined up, but there are probably a lot of ways we didn't. And that's what makes it great. I don't claim to have uh, the, the be-all, end-all uh, definitive vision for this, um, that, that I'm probably wrong on more than a few points, and I would happily 
uh, engage some thoughtful debate on that. So, and definitely, there's probably a lot of ways that that neither one of us were uh, um, communicating that you really love. Maybe you love the concept of of heaven being this. Uh, place of, of angels and clouds and sure I mean if that helps you that's good as long as that's not what motivates your faith uh, then that's better but if if heaven is a place where your grandma is up there knitting with Einstein and uh, that they're playing harps the whole time and that they're looking down at you and going look at this little baby uh, then that's great if it's a comfort just as long as that doesn't become something that that you focus on that more than you focus on people and more than you focus on God uh, if you're on the internet machine uh, the Twitter, Rough the Pastor, Instagram, Roughing the Pastor. Uh, feel free to engage us in this conversation. What are your thoughts on heaven and hell? Uh, hit us up. Let us know what you think. Jay, I hope you're doing great. Uh, and I hope we can uh, actually talk to each other next week. I really appreciate it. Um, thanks for, for you know hopping on again. I got to run upstairs. Um, stay safe out there. Uh, until next time. I've been Tyler. And I've been Jay. And this has been Roughing, Roughing the, the Pastor. pastor. We'll see you next week together again for the very first time. Bye, everybody. Uh, Have a wonderful week. Boom.